Good morning again. This is week three on the topic of baptism. Let's pray. Father, help me as your servant, as a pastor, with the teaching gift to do just that, to teach, to make clear baptism. Help us, Father, here, as frail, finite people. See the beauty and the glory of it and how it's a means of worship of you through our Savior who died for us and thus we with him, who rose from the dead and thus we with him now and in the future forever. Let our baptisms preach to us daily throughout our lives to the glory of your name. Amen. All right, so as I said, this is <clears throat> week three, and I've been arguing for two weeks for what is called believer's baptism, as opposed to infant baptism. Other technical terms is this, I'm a credo-baptist. Credo comes from the Latin to believe. That's believer's baptism, as opposed to a pedo-baptist coming from the Greek word paidon, meaning child, child or infant baptism. So now in the third week, this is where we're going. Here's the reality. There are very many throughout church history and very many genuine Christians who hold clearly to the gospel, are born again, have fruits of the Spirit in their lives, and they baptize infants. Many of my theological he heroes did so. St. Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, and many of you, I know one who's very influenced by R.C. Sproul, who just went to be with Jesus, a Pado baptist St. Clair Ferguson, who's alive. Kevin DeYoung. You ever read Kevin? You ought to read Kevin. He's a smart guy, and he writes really clearly. And many of us went through his book in the women's group and in the men's group. Pado baptist Okay, that's the reality. Those who hold, or many, to the gospel. We share it in common. Justification by grace through faith alone. Many, many, many reformed theologically, believing in the doctrines of grace and unconditional election, also believe in infant baptism. Not only that, if you were to say historically with the word, many of you know, reformed, in the Reformed tradition from the 1500s up to the present day is not merely the theology of Tulip 
But it is also ecclesiology, which for most of them means infant baptism. That's why if you're a Presbyterian and you sign off on the Westminster Confession of Faith, a great confession of faith, I can't sign off on all of it because part of it is affirming belief in infant baptism. Okay, so that's what we want to tackle, what's happening, what's going on, what's the distinction, why do they believe it, why do I not, and I, I believe most of you here do not, if not all of you. So first, over the last two weeks, th this is what we have seen that, that causes me to be a credo or believer's baptism guy. And all the examples in the New Testament where baptism is occurring, faith always precedes that baptism. Infants, one-month-old babies, cannot have the capacity for faith, and therefore we ought not baptize them. Secondly, there is no explicit instance of infant or little teeny child or toddler baptism in the Bible. Thirdly, Peter defined water baptism this way we saw last week. It is not a removal of dirt from the body, but is what? It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, according to Peter, it's an outward sign of something happening in the soul, in the heart of the person appealing to God about the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus for a good conscience. And the person being baptized is doing that, not their parents. So those are just some of the reasons I don't buy the complex theological arguments for infant baptism. Now, I mentioned some of the smartest men in history, not just in the church, who baptized infants. So let's just start this way. Whether they're dead or alive, brothers and sisters in the Lord, they're not stupid. Most of them are extremely smart. And they are attempting to be as faithful to the Bible as I want to be as faithful to the Bible. So, why don't they buy what seems to be very clear arguments over the last two weeks that I presented about believers' baptism, that it should only be given to those who have come to a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, first, let me make a few comments about those who hold to paedo-baptism or infant baptism. First is this. They admit that in the New Testament, we only see believers being baptized. Well, obviously, because since it's, it's only dealing with the first generation evangelism in the New Testament and not second and third generation child-rearing. Secondly, paedo-baptists agree that the only adults that should be baptized 
are believers with a, with a profession of credible faith in Jesus. And therefore, the issue is what happens when those adult believers get married and they have babies and they have children? What about the children of covenant believers in Jesus Christ within the church? That's the issue. And at core, their position is based on this elaborate theological covenantal system and structure and boiled down for them, this is what convinces them, Christian baptism parallels Old Testament circumcision. The sign and the mark of being God's covenant people is those baby boys on the eighth day are circumcised. And thus, they are in covenant with God. Now, since Christ came, the sign is changed to baptism, and it's a one-to-one -one parallel. Therefore, since they baptized their covenant children on the eighth day of their lives, infants, we, who are covenant people in the new covenant, should baptize our children as infants. Did I say they baptized? I meant they circumcised, of course. So, the main reason that within the Reformed tradition that they endorse the baptism of infants, of those who are believers, they have babies, is that to them there appears to be a one-to-one -one link from the Old Covenant sign of circumcision to the New Covenant sign of baptism. So just as circumcision was given to the babies of those who are in the covenant, so baptism is to be given to babies to those who are in the new covenant church. Okay? So the crucial question then is whether the New Testament command to be baptized, is it parallel to the old covenant command? to circumcise the children of the covenant. That's the issue. Or, on the other hand, are there new realities and new truths about the nature of the people of the new covenant that shows us that circumcision and baptism are not a one-to-one -one correspondence or transfer from the Old Covenant. Change it to water now, now girls can do it too, and thus you just baptize babies like they circumcised babies in the Old Covenant. And so what I'm going to do then with the rest of our time is look at two passages. One's going to be in Romans. The first will be... Colossians chapter 2, turn there, verses 11 to 14, because these are two passages that Paedo-Baptists use, rely upon. They see something different in them and make arguments for their position of infant baptism. So first, Colossians 2, 11 to 14. <clears throat> Paul writes, In him also... 
you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision, because these are Gentiles, they're not Jews, they don't have the mark of circumcision. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. <coughs> and so first we see at the end there, the gospel. Jesus objectively outside of us, nailed our guilt and our sin to the cross and thus provided the absolute forgiveness of all our sins. The gospel. He did that on our behalf outside of us. But now notice in this text, Paul says God does something in us. Not just for us, outside of us, on the cross, but subjectively, experientially, in us, so that we benefit from what Jesus did on the cross. And it's in verse 13. He pictures it as resurrection. Spiritual resurrection right now. Not the future resurrection of the body. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh as a Gentile, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So he says, we were spiritually dead. Then... The hearing of the gospel, he made us alive. This elsewhere in the New Testament is called the miracle of new birth, of regeneration. We are saved because God resurrects our hearts in the hearing of the gospel, and thus we believe we have faith in the gospel, the faith that saves. Okay? See that yet? He raised us. Then he uses the picture of circumcision in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He defines it now. What do you mean? By the putting off of the body, of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, 
we have to get what he just said. Paul compares that saving work of God happening in us with circumcision. He says, new birth, or God raising you from the dead, making you alive, it's like circumcision in the Old Covenant. Except, this circumcision is not physical. This circumcision is made without physical human hands. In other words, this circumcision is a spiritual thing he's talking about. And he says what is being cut away is not the male foreskin, but it is the body of the flesh. And knowing Paul, when he says the soma of the sarks, that word sarks is his word for sinful nature throughout his writings. Paul means that this spiritual cutting away is a cutting away of the old, unbelieving, blind, rebellious, sinful nature before new birth. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we lived and walked according to the course of the world. According to the prince of the power of the air, we are all by nature children of God's wrath against us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He circumcised us, made us alive together with Christ. That's how Paul says it here in Colossians. And then he says, here's another analogy of it, circumcised us spiritually without hands. Okay, do you see that? I know this is the hard one, so you've got to follow. So if you see that, here's the big question. Is water baptism the Christian counterpart to Old Testament physical circumcision? In other words, here's the, put, put it this way. Can, can we say that just as circumcision was given to the, the children, the infants of God's covenant people back in the old covenant, so now baptism should be given to the children of God's covenant people. Is that a valid interpretation of this passage in Colossians 2? As many paedo-baptists, argue. I think, for me, the key verses are verses 11 and 12. Because it is right there where Paul links the terms circumcision and baptism. Let's read. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He says, believer, because they all been baptized, that's what believers do, having been buried, he's talking about the circumcision of the flesh here, having been buried 
with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So notice that the circumcision of verse 11, the one without hands, that's what he did. That means Paul's talking about, right, a spiritual reality, not some physical right that you went through. It's a f spiritual reality that he's drawing from the physical reality of the old covenant physical circumcision. In the new covenant, it's spiritual. It's the heart being changed, cut. Then, baptism is linked to that spiritual reality. It's linked to that spiritual circumcision, not to physical circumcision. So according to this text, what's the New Testament parallel to the Old Covenant sign of physical circumcision? And the answer is not baptism. The New Testament parallel to the Old Covenant physical circumcision, which did put those babies into covenant with God, the New Testament parallel of those who are in the New Covenant with God is not water baptism, it is circumcision. Phys I mean, spiritual circumcision made without hands. Another way to say it, it's regeneration. It's new birth. It is that which shows its evidence by believing in Jesus. And then, baptism is brought in as the external expression of that spiritual reality. So that's the flow. Christ does a circumcision. It says, without hands... That's the new covenant. The spiritual fulfillment of the old covenant physical sign of circumcision. And then verse 12 draws the parallel between that spiritual miracle, work of God by the Spirit in the heart to water baptism. Or water baptism portrays the spiritual circumcision. So if we say that baptism done by the hands, by pastors and elders or church members, baptism done by the hands corresponds to the Old Testament ritual of circumcision, which was done by human hands, then we totally miss Paul's point. The point is that the new covenant is creating the church as each individual is being circumcised without human hands. God is doing it. Raising them from death to life. And then the waters of baptism come in as the sign of that happening. 
the new covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ, is being made up of persons in a whole new way from the old covenant by spiritual birth, not physical birth. That's the text. And what makes it crystal clear is the phrase Paul uses in verse 12. Through faith. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were raised with Him through faith in the powerful work in a God who raised Him from the dead. So, if water baptism were to merely take the place of old covenant physical circumcision that they gave to babies, then it, baptism would not be, according to Paul, through faith because obviously eight-day-old boys did not have the capacity to have faith. And Paul here assumes with baptism there's faith happening in the heart and that's why they're being baptized. So in this passage, the reason that baptism must be through faith is that it doesn't represent the old covenant external circumcision ritual. But baptism represents the internal spiritual experience of circumcision of the heart without human hands. Okay. Now, let's turn to one more. Romans 4. Verses 9 through 11. Romans 4, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, many of those who hold to infant baptism, what they see in verse 11 of Romans 4 is their strongest argument for their position. In other words, the argument goes like this. In verse 9, Paul says, Faith, remember, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham is forgiven of his sins. He's justified by God by faith alone. Faith was counted or credited to Abraham as righteousness. That's verse 9. Then verse 10 points out the fact that this happened before Abraham took the sign of circumcision. See it? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Answer, it was not after. 
But before he was circumcised, he was already justified by faith. So the point is that Abraham's justification was not brought about through physical circumcision. That came later. Justification, being made right with God, or it would say it this way, Abraham's salvation came through faith alone. And that is Paul's whole point in this section of Romans. Okay, Then comes the crucial verse 11. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had. By faith, while he was still uncircumcised. And so Abraham's circumcision here is clearly described as a sign he saved. And so the Pado Baptist will say to us in this room, you, Credo Baptist, believers' baptism people, your whole argument is that you don't get baptized until you are first justified by faith alone. Then the baptism is the sign in the public declaration that that's true of you. That Of what? That you already have saving faith. That's your argument. And thus you're saved by faith, you're justified by faith, before you get baptized. And we would all say, yes, that's our argument. And then they'll come back and say, that seems to be true of circumcision also. Right there in verse 11. Circumcision is a sign, it's a seal, of the faith that Abraham already had. He was already justified by that faith. And then he was circumcised as a sign and a seal of what was true of him before God and in his heart with faith. Whew. See, the argument is if circumcision and baptism both signify the same thing, saving faith, then believer, Baptist people, you cannot use this meaning of baptism by itself as an argument for why we ought not baptize babies. Why? Because you can't just say, well, baptism is an expression, outwardly and physically, of what is true inwardly beforehand in that person called faith. And then baptism just publicly portrays it through physical water. And therefore, we should not baptize babies because babies can't have faith. You can't make that argument because Romans 4.11 says the same thing. Circumcision is also a sign of justifying faith. But then, God told his covenant man, Abraham, circumcise 
all the family and every baby on the eighth day. Genesis 17, and it's repeated over and over during the Old Testament period in the Old Covenant. So if circumcision can be a sign of justifying faith and still be given to babies, to infants, then why should not baptism be given to the kids of the parents who are in covenant with God? Go ahead and argue against that. She's got one. <laughs> all right. So what do you do with it? Look, first of all is this. Paul doesn't bring in baptism at all here in Romans 4. His whole point is not to say something that's true about all Old Covenant Israel. It's The point is to bring Abraham up as the example, the beginning of the faith, the father of the faith. And it was very true of Abraham. But in this text, his argument is not to say, not even to deal with the issue of whether circumcision is a sign and a seal of saving faith in everyone who will be circumcised. That is not his point. He just, he's making the point that Jew, if you trust in your circumcision and in all the works of the law to be justified, you've totally missed the boat. Nobody will ever be saved by their works of the law. Uh, including water baptism. No one will ever be saved by these things. Here's the example. Look at Abraham. He was saved before. Circum That's the only point he's making. But now here's the larger thing of why I really think this argument just doesn't work. And it's this. It's built upon a wrong assumption about the similarity between the people of God, His covenant people in the Old Covenant versus His covenant people in the New Covenant. And they're really different. In other words, it assumes that the way God gathered his covenant people, Israel, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And the way that He's gathering His people through Jesus in the New Covenant, the people, that is the church today, it's so similar that the different signs of the covenant, changing from circumcision now to water baptism, just flow easily so that they should be administered in the same way. Baptize, I mean, you circumcise babies back then. In the New Covenant, we circumcise, we baptize babies now. And it is that assumption that I think is dead wrong. There are differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant people that explain why the Old Covenant sign of circumcision was given to infants of Israel. And why 
we are not to give the new covenant sign of water baptism to the infants of churched people. Let me start this way. First, Paul in Romans 9, he makes this distinction clear. Verses 6 to 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended physically from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, Paul's all, okay, what he's going to be doing, what he's doing here, he's saying there is a physical Israel, and they were in covenant with God, yes. But there's a spiritual Israel. And just being part of the covenant of the old covenant of God doesn't make you part of spiritual Israel, the new covenant of God. That's where he's going. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham just because they are his physical offspring. And then he goes to start the argument. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, not, not Ishmael. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the children. And he goes to unravel it, and ultimately it goes and boils down to election. That's what he's doing. So Paul says, essentially, this is what I want, the point we want to get. There's a physical Israel, and there's a spiritual Israel. Not all who are descended physically from Israel, even like Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, his religiosity surpassed them all, and he was perishing and going to hell. He wasn't spiritual Israel until Jesus made him circumcised his heart as a Jew. So, got, it, got that picture. Here's the point, though. In redemptive history, we just had a long series on redemptive history. It was God's purpose to ordain physical descendants of Abraham as a religious community and group, a nationality, that is Israel as a whole, as his covenant people. He did. The old covenant. And he purposed for all of them based upon being born naturally. Take the sign of the covenant to continue through the generations, and thus they are in covenant with Almighty God. Thus you are to circumcise your baby boys on the eighth day and pass this covenant down. That's how God did it. God's covenant people, though, in the Old Testament were a mixed bag. They're all in the covenant. And some are saved. Some are justified. And others aren't. And that's what the old covenant was in a nutshell. They were all physically Israel who were circumcised. The males. But within that national ethnic group, there were always the remnant of true Israel who were circumcised also in the heart. Like Abraham, and like Moses, and like Caleb, and like Joshua, and like Jeremiah, and like David. They 
were, let me use some, um, these, are, these are Bible terms I'm going to show you in a minute, Old Covenant, New Covenant. They were New Covenant people, persons, during the Old Covenant dispensation or period. So, in the Old Testament, God has both Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy about the new covenant that's coming. And Ezekiel says, here's the difference. With this covenant I'm going to make, I'm going to rip out the heart of stone. It just rebels against me. And I'm going to place within all those new covenant people a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to cause them to obey me. I'm going to cause them to walk with me. Now turn to Jeremiah. I'm going to read. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. We read this almost 600 years before Jesus comes. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Got to get this. Not like... I'm going to add this word here, the old. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay. But this, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. Now he defines the new covenant. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Now this is key. Listen to this. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor in this new covenant. And each his brother saying, Come on! Know the Lord! They won't do that. They won't have to do that. Because in the new covenant, they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It is impossible to actually be a new covenant person and not be saved and not know the Lord. 
to be an old covenant person, majority of them were not saved and did not know the Lord. Huge distinction. So the question is, is the church that Jesus founded, is it to be a continuation of the larger just include the Gentiles somehow now. Ethnic, religious Israel, and now Gentiles you're welcome in too. Is, is that all it is? And so we just change the sign and bring them, babies in to the covenant. Or is the church a continuation of the remnant of David and Moses and Joshua? and Abraham, who were circumcised in heart and thus knew the Lord and believed, is the church that? That is the remnant who are the true children because of circumcision of the heart which manifests itself since Christ in their trust and faith in Jesus for their justification. Is the new covenant church made up of people based on natural descent? Thus, my children, born of me, you must be in the covenant. Is that what the church is about? Or is the church, the new covenant church, based on a spirit-born community with the law written on their hearts and defined by their saving faith. The difference is that being circumcised on the eighth day in covenant, true covenant with God in the old covenant of Israel, that did not necessarily mean you had any faith in God whatsoever. It did not mean that you were born again or forgiven of your sins or circumcised. It didn't necessarily mean it. The new covenant necessarily means you're born again your Holy Spirit indwelt. You have saving faith. You are saved. God has taken out the rock hardness of the heart and placed His Spirit in them. And I believe and you're a new covenant person. Paul reflects this when he writes in Galatians 3, 26-29. For in Christ Jesus, that's it, are you in Christ? You believe in Jesus? Are you in Him? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. He's talking to non-Jews mainly here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are true Israel. I mean, then you are Abraham's offspring. And heirs according to promise. 
The church is not to be like Israel. A physical group of people born into it with a small remnant of actual believers in the church. The more we get these things wrong, the more that is what actually happens in the physical church, to tell you the truth. The church is the new covenant people believers by definition. So, assuming we all had God's knowledge, which none of us do, but God knows all these are actually new covenant people, then they don't need to say to one another like under the old covenant, you've you got to know God personally. You have to know Him, love Him like David. No, you don't need to do that because they all look at each other. I do know Him. They shall all know me. So, Old Testament Israel, the nation, the ethnic group, the religious people, all Israel, whether they were of faith, true children of God, or not, they were all in covenant with God. And that's why it was fitting that circumcision was given to all the children of covenant Israel. But the people in the New Covenant, the church, it is being constructed in a fundamentally different way. Not based on ethnicity, race, Western culture, nationality, or who your mommy and daddy are. But it's on the reality of faith alone, by grace alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit alone in each person. And so it's not fitting that the children who are merely born according to the flesh should receive the sign of the covenant of baptism. Jesus said, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. And the church is the new covenant community brought about by God putting His Spirit in us, circumcising our hearts, and causing us to come to saving faith. Unlike the old covenant community, this covenant is defined by true spiritual life and faith in those who are in the covenant. And therefore, to give the sign of the new covenant to babies who have no evidence of new birth and can't, have no evidence of the law of God written, not just on pages of Scripture, but in their heart. To do that and baptize them is a contradiction in the meaning of the new covenant community. Let me just say it this way. And, and you know, I started off saying, look, many 
true brothers and sisters disagree. Doesn't make the issue for them, nor for me, insignificant. It's significant. But it is not necessarily savingly significant because either way, none of us believe that is a reformed Pado Baptist or a reformed Baptist. None of us believe that baptism saves. But oh, how we view the church and the walk in this world is significant. That's the glory of being able to be sincere believers and to disagree over issues and to listen to others, okay, and to not throw each other under the bus in any kind of personal way, but to know where we differ. Having said that, for us to not baptize our young children because of what we understand baptism to be, that, that is flowing from a heart of love for those children. To keep the new covenant clear. To keep the gospel clear. To preserve for them the purity and the power of the spiritual community that Jesus is creating on the earth. And so, let me close this way. If you believe in the gospel of Jesus, It's not your job to figure out, am I chosen? Introspection is important. I will never say don't be that way. Always examine your heart, but don't overdo it. If you you lie down, no one else is around between you and God. You can talk to God and say, I know you raised Jesus from the dead. He died for my sins. I so believe this. I, this is like the greatest news in the world. Oh, if that is you, you're supposed to then take the first step of discipleship and be baptized. Or if I would just say it this way, to any who have not taken that step. Choose this day whom you will serve. Your flesh, is that which is your goal? To say, I just can't wait to get out of the house. I want to live for my sinful nature. I want, to, I want to be so worldly and live for the world. Or is there something you say, I don't. I want to live for the Savior. Ding, 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 ding. That is a really good sign. You love Him. You believe in Him. And so the biblical command, repent. Believe. And be baptized with your public confession. Come out of the world clearly and into Christ's church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are good. 
And I thank you, Father, in the light of this particular sermon, and I mean this on behalf of all Pado baptists who love you as much or even more than I do, and vice versa, that you have such manifest grace upon us as finite beings, always in need of correcting and rethinking, and that we can go to heaven being wrong on theological, churchly issues. Because we know one thing. You have poured out the Spirit of your Son into our hearts. And that's why we find ourselves crying out to you as a four-year-old. Daddy, Appa, Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus that purchased this great salvation. Amen.